The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that the believers are like one body. If one part of the body is in pain, the whole body should feel that pain. However, many people are not aware of the atrocities and the persecution of the Uyghur people. And that is the purpose of our event today, to educate ourselves and create awareness of this genocide. To begin the program, we have a presentation by Dr. Zuhair Abdurrahman, who was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. He now resides here in Brisbane, practices as a medical doctor. He studied Islamic sciences under various local teachers, and currently he is a volunteer imam at many of the masajid here in Brisbane, where he does lectures for the youth and adults. Um, he, is, he has a strong research interest in Islamic theology and Islamic spirituality and mental health. Alongside his Islamic research, he has also published in medical journals and presented at psychiatric conferences. Dr. Zuhair. Bismillah. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Assalatu wa Salaam, Rasulullah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa ma'ad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Jazakumullah khairan. I want to say a big thank you to all of the guests that came forward uh, this Saturday evening uh, to come and to listen and learn and discuss and conversate and get engaged and get involved in what I think is the greatest humanitarian crisis that we are facing in this world at this moment and possibly in human history. Now, this portion of the program is going to, inshallah ta'ala, be a bit about history. And the reason why I felt it was important to go into history is because as Muslims, this part of the world China has always been a very foreign part of the world. It's been a, a part of the world that we're not familiar with in terms of the history of Islam in that region. And because of that, we find that the Chinese Communist Party has preyed on the ignorance of the Muslims throughout the world and has given propaganda to the Muslims so they will not support the Uyghur cause. And this propaganda essentially is trying to say that this part of China, they're trying to say that this is actually a part of China. You know, that there's some racial tensions, there's ethnic tensions, there's this and that and whatnot, and that it's all Western propaganda. This is all from America and from UK and NATO and all those, uh, you know, allied governments that don't like China. And so they're trying to make this thing uh, up in a very sensationalized way about the persecution of the Uyghurs, but it's not true. And they put out videos online, they spend money in this. They pay people to do this as well. And they'll pay Muslims in China, and Muslims will see Muslims from China, Chinese Muslims, maybe saying, oh, it's not true, this is not true. And Muslims say, oh yeah, this is just Western propaganda. They always are making a story in the media, just like they do with Islam and terrorism and whatnot. That's the game that they're playing. And so in order for us to become immune to that game, in order for us to understand the reality of it, we have to learn about the history in that region. And we'll be very surprised to know the beautiful history of the Uyghur people of East Turkestan and why this issue is so important for us as an ummah. Because it breaks my heart to say this, but it is true. And, you know, I put myself in the same boat as everyone else. As an ummah, we have abandoned the Uyghur people. As an ummah, we have abandoned the Uyghur people. You look in the Middle East and, subhanAllah, you find as we're going to go into the forced organ harvesting, who are they selling to and marketing halal organs to? Who is going to want to have the halal organs to help them with their transplants? It's the Muslims. There's a market for it. A'udhu billah. And of course, this is in the Muslim world. And you look at ourselves and our community, how often we speak about Palestine and we should speak about Palestine. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala liberate it. Ameen. How often we speak about Sham and Yemen. How often we speak about what's happening in different places of the Muslim world, which we should be talking about. But how often are we making dua for our Uyghur brothers and sisters 
and uncles and aunties and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and scholars and imams? Is it in our mind? Is it in our dua? This evening is about taking that first step because as an ummah, we are behind the line. We need to take that first step in front of the line so that the Uyghur people are on our minds. They're in our du'as. They're in our conscience. And we're ready to take action when we need to take action. So please bear with me. This presentation, inshallah, will have two parts. It will be the history of Islam in China. And the reason why I think this was important was in fact because I wanted to make sure people understand Islam in China is a separate history to the history of the Uyghurs. They are two different histories. And in order to do that, I wanted to actually go through, then what is this Islam in China? And why are the Chinese Muslims there? And what is the issue? And who are the Uyghurs? And why are they different? So, inshallah ta'ala, let's go to the prophetic era. We'll start with the prophetic era. This is the time of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and we're going through the history of Islam in China. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he never went to China himself. It has not been reported from any of our sources. Whether or not the companions of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam went to China during his lifetime is something that's not within our sources. That's not within the sources of the Muslims. We do have one narration that does mention China by name, but of course this is a well-known fabricated narration and it's that narration, seek knowledge even if it takes you to China. Seek knowledge even if it takes you to China and this is a well-known fabricated narration. Now that's from our sources, but when you look at the Chinese sources, particularly from the Chinese Muslims, they have a different rendition of events. They have three different versions of how Islam first came into China. The first two, really don't make any sense when you score it with what we know from our own tradition. The third one may be plausible. All three of these say that Muslims came to China during the time of the Prophet So the first version or the first story uh, is the emperor of the Sui dynasty. This was in the year 587 CE. Now pause here. When was the Prophet born? Pop quiz, anyone know? Which year was it? 600? No, but before? 570. 570 CE. So already this story doesn't make much sense because the Prophet would be 15 years old at this point and didn't receive Nubu'ah. But in any case, essentially this emperor, his name was Sui Wenti, he saw a bright star in a dream and it was interpreted that there is going to be an appearance of a great man that will come to, from Arabia. And so he sent a delegation to the Prophet ﷺ and asked him to come. And the Prophet ﷺ sent four companions. And the king was so impressed with them, he built for them a masjid in Guangzhou. The second version of events is the second emperor of the Tang dynasty. Now here, the years add up. It's 627 to 644 CE. So this is during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. And it's also when he's actually a prophet. And it is said that this emperor of the Tang dynasty saw a dream of a beast that was attacking him and then a person dressed in a shawl and he was, uh, had a white turban and he was using the tasbih or the rosary beads. Um, and it was interpreted for him that this is about a prophet who was to be born in Arabia. And so the Tang uh, emperor then asked for the Prophet's presence but instead he sent some companions to him. The third version of events, so both these versions, from our point of view, it's, it's quite unlikely that it happened. Because if something like that were to have occurred, I mean, within the hadith literature, you have every detail about the Prophet ﷺ, about the companions and where they went and, where they, and what they went for and which expeditions they went on in the delegations. If this was not mentioned, it's quite unlikely that companions were sent and that a person from China came in the presence of the Prophet ﷺ. So we can dismiss those. This one is an interesting one, the third one. This one, because we can't really falsify it. If it happened, wallahu ta'ala alam. 
So this is a story where one of the companions who was in Abyssinia, now pause here, for those who don't know, the Muslims who were persecuted in Mecca, they were told to go to Abyssinia. They were told to go to Abyssinia, which was in Africa, modern-day Ethiopia, so that they would escape the persecution. And they were there for many years during the lifetime of the Prophet and even afterwards. And so from this version, this companion goes to Abyssinia, unnamed. And he essentially doesn't like living in, in, in Ethiopia, in Abyssinia. He's not really fond of the lifestyle. It's difficult for him. So he decides to get onto a boat and sail through the Arabian Sea and the, uh, sorry, to the Gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf, and into the uh, southern aspect port of China, which is close to where Guangzhou is. And this companion then disembarks and he essentially lives his life there and he introduces the people to Islam because he's a Muslim at this point. But of course, he doesn't know much of the Quran because it hasn't all been revealed yet. He doesn't know as well, you know, all the different updates to Islam and whatnot, what was happening during the lifetime of the Prophet But he comes and tells them about this idea and whatnot. And so then Arab merchants who would come to China, and that was something that was there, the Silk Road and whatnot, that, that was a bit later, but this, there you have the, the, the trade connections uh, of the Arabs and the, the Chinese, and so some Arab trade merchants would go, meet this person, this companion, the companion would give da'wah to these Arab merchants, they would accept Islam, some of them would stay, and so you have this community now forming in China. Uh, and it is said that the um, uh, the people were so impressed with them they built a masjid there in Guangzhou in the Canton uh, province um, and there has been some interesting archaeological evidence that has been dated to 618 early you know 626 of pottery that has written in it ancient Arabic like you know pre-Uthmanic uh, uh, you know uh, script Arabic uh, Allahu Akbar God is the greatest and so whether or not this story is true, it's in the Chinese sources, and it would make sense that it's not in our sources, because how would, we, how would anyone come to know something like that? So wallahu ta'ala alam. So in this version, it is quite possible that Islam arrived in China during the time of the Prophet So that's an incredible point to understand as well about that region of the world being a very much part of the story of Islam. Now, in the Tang Dynasty, and this is the version that we have within our sources and historians generally recognize, this is during the time of Uthman radiallahu Okay, so after the Prophet passes away, who becomes the leader? Abu Bakr then, Umar then, Uthman. Three. So, so Abu Bakr is for how many years? Two years. Very good, you saw my two fingers. Then Umar is for 10 years. So 12 years after the Prophet we're saying here, it is established and definitive that Uthman actually sent a delegation of Muslims to China to establish relations and trade relations and these sorts of things. Because the Muslim empire had expanded and it was bordering the Tang dynasty at this time. And so the companions went there, they were well received. Uh, and you know, there are different accounts from the Chinese sources that Sa'ad ibn Waqqas one of the ten promised Jannah, one of the best companions that the Prophet had was among them. But it's nothing from our sources. Allahu alam if this is true. They do have a grave there that's outside and that masjid is actually the masjid to this day that's there and it's still standing actually, not the original obviously, but in that same region. That is where the masjid, it does the masjid in Guangzhou, that was the first masjid built in China, all the way back uh, in its originally, originally during the time of Uthman radiallahu um, And they do have a grave there, and it is attributed to Sa'ad ibn Waqqas, but from our sources, Sa'ad ibn Waqqas did not die in China. Allahu alam, it could have been someone who was a student of Sa'ad ibn Waqqas, you know, someone that was close to Sa'ad ibn Waqqas, that's why there's that kind of focus there of Sa'ad ibn Waqqas. Because every story you see, even in the Chinese sources, they always mention Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Okay. So, the Tang Dynasty, the Muslims are there now during the Tang Dynasty. So this is 618 to 906, this era. And in this time, Muslims are settling there as mostly merchants. And other Muslims are coming and they're forming their own communities. The Tang Dynasty treated them 
quite well. And in fact, the Muslims were spared. In, at this time, in the Tang Dynasty, they actually persecuted all other religious minorities, the Zoroastrians, the Christians. But the Muslims were spared because they were very impressed with how they were in their akhlaq and adab and how they traded in their integrity and their nobility and honor and respect. So the Muslims were actually spared from this persecution. At the same time, while this, there were Muslims living there, there was also some uh, battles that took place because the Tang Dynasty tried to expand its territory into the Abbasid uh, Caliphate as well before even the Umayyads as well. So there have been some battles there and the Muslims were able to stop them from advancing. Now, at this stage, Muslims are in the Tang Dynasty. They're a small minority. They're keeping to themselves. Now, the Song Dynasty comes after the Tang Dynasty and this is 960 to 1279. At this point in time, Muslims start to become part of one of the ethnic minorities of China. They start to bring in their families, they start to marry other Chinese, and they start to gain positions in government as well. So they become part of the Chinese culture. They're an ethnic minority. They're not just, you know, Arab traders that are there. They've now become very much ethnically Chinese and mixed in with the Chinese population. And they kept to their Islam and their religious identity as well. And during the Song Dynasty, they start to build lots of different masajid. This masjid actually, I was blessed and fortunate enough to be able to, uh, to visit actually. This masjid is known as the Great Mos Mosque of Xi'an. The Great Mosque of Xi'an. And subhanAllah, I was amazed to see this masjid, which is dated back to the Song Dynasty. This masjid uh, it has obviously been expanded from its original, but there were some original uh, you know, wood that was there actually in part of the structure. And what you see over there with my hand over there, that inscription, that is the Qur'an. And there are 30 panels throughout the entire masjid. And in each panel, one juz of the Qur'an is inscribed there. So you do the math, 30 panels, 30 ajza, that's the entire Qur'an al-Kareem that is written on the walls and inscribed on the walls of the masjid that is here. And on the bottom, there is a Mandarin translation. So you see, this is not just, you know, Islam was a peripheral thing and whatnot, they lost their religion or anything like this. At this point in time, you see Islam was something that was greatly flourishing. Although I should say that that inscription took place about 200 years ago or so. Uh, it was not from, you know, a thousand years ago. Okay, that's the Song Dynasty. Now we go to the Yuan Dynasty. Not the Yuan market, the Yuan Dynasty. Uh, and so that's from 1279 to 1368. And here we have Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan was one of the Mongols and one of the, he was the grandson of Genghis Khan. And of course, for anyone who knows history, Genghis Khan was literally an earthquake in human history. He disturbed the entire political balance. He came from, he united the tribes in Mongolia and he expanded east, uh, westward and he devastated the Muslim world and he went and he conquered and conquered and conquered. So part of the conquering as well was actually China itself. This was, um, you know, uh, a time where China was now ruled by non-Chinese kind of ethnic, right? This is a Mongol empire that has taken over. Now, the Mongols later on, they actually become Muslim. They actually become Muslim and they accept Islam. They become very impressed with the religious ideology, theology, the culture of the Muslims. So they discard their own and they actually adopt the culture and religion of the people that they conquered, which is an incredible thing if you think about it, subhanAllah. Usually when you conquer a place, you implant your culture, your morals, your ethics, your values onto the people. In this case, the Muslims responded in such an incredible way that the conquerors themselves adopted the way of life of the people that they conquered. Uh, and so in China at this time, which is controlled by the Mongols, you see a lot of importing of Persian culture and Muslims, more Muslims are coming into China as well during this time. And so they start to gain an increase in status because their numbers are increasing as well. That's a Mus'haf, by the way, um, uh, in Xi'an as well, that was dated to the time in the UN dynasty. Uh, and it was, uh, 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 it, was, it was actually written, I think, per, from Persia, and it was sent to uh, Xi'an. Now we move on to the Ming Dynasty. This is where Islam is really reaching its, uh, one of its peaks. And so in the Ming Dynasty, uh, this was between 1368 to 1644, 
the Han. Now, who are the Han? The Han are the majority ethnicity of China. So they are the main Chinese people. The mass majority of China is Han Chinese. So, of course, the Yuan Dynasty was Mongol. So a lot of the ethnically Chinese were trying to regain their land. And so the Han revolted multiple times. They were not really successful. Uh, but then eventually they were, and they established the Ming Dynasty. And this goes all the way to 1644. And at this time, Muslims start to establish madrasas and madaris and, and places of learning and places to become ulama and scholars. There was a mass translation movement as well where they started to translate the Arabic and the Farsi books because, of course, the Persian influence is coming during the Mongols. So you're getting these books, you're getting these mixing of ideas. And so they're translating it to Chinese languages. And you start to see Islamic concepts becoming part of the Chinese language and you see that with most cultures where Muslims went in the world where you know local cultures and languages start to adopt their own way of saying things uh, and so for instance if you go there even at this at this time halal is known as Qingjun Qingjun is the equivalent of halal it's not just a translation that's the word that they use so we see this flourishing of Islam in China we see Zheng He who's the Chinese admiral many of you may have heard of the naval uh, Zheng He who was a Muslim Chinese uh, naval admiral who had a fleet of thousands of, uh, you know, of, of ships and he sailed all throughout the southern kind of sea. It is said that he reached America, but these are just unsubstantiated kind of legends, nothing that's really been definitive in that. Uh, but some have said he reached there before uh, uh, Columbus. Um, what was really fascinating, subhanAllah, is the hundred-word eulogy. And this was written by the... Emperor of the Ming Dynasty, Hong Wu. He is the emperor of the Ming Dynasty, and his he was so impressed with the Muslims and the Muslim way of life, and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He penned this eulogy. Now, what is this eulogy? I have it actually written up on the slide. This eulogy, I'll just read it out to you. The universe began with the heavenly tablet recording his name, referring to the Prophet sallallahu and the heavenly tablet referring to the Loham Mahfud. The religion delivering great sage born in the Western realm, conferring and receiving heavenly scripture in 30 parts, that's the Quran in 30 juz, universally transforming all created beings, master of the trillion rulers, leader of the 10,000 sages, assisted, that's referring to the companions of the Prophet, the 10,000 sages, assisted by destiny, protector of the community. In each of the five prayers, he silently supplicates for their total well being. His intention is that Allah should remember the needy, deliver them from tribulations to safety, knower of the unseen, exalted above every soul and spirit, free from any blameworthy deeds, a mercy to all the worlds, rahmatan lil alameen, whose path is preeminent for all time, renouncing spiritual ignorance, returning to the one, that is the religion called Islam. Muhammad is the most noble sage, subhanAllah. That is actually from the Ming emperor, this is not just, you know, some small fry that's going... Th this is the emperor of China at the time. And the Ming Dynasty, which is one of the greatest dynasties of China. And this is the respect that they had for Islam. Now, we move on to the Qing Dynasty. And this is where we see the meeting of the Uyghur history with the Chinese history. Look how far we've come, right? And we're going to come now next to the Uyghur history. But at this point, the Qing Dynasty basically is an ethnic minority the Manchu people, they're still Chinese, but they're a minority. They take over the Ming Dynasty. And during this time, you have the imperialism of the West, the decline of China generally, economically and politically. Um, and so that is the, uh, the uh, Qing Dynasty. And after the Qing Dynasty is going to be the, uh, uh, is going to come the Republic of China and, and all these things that are going to occur afterwards. So I'm just going to skip over um, a few slides here. Uh, and get to the history of the Uyghurs. So now we've done the history of Islam in China. We have a general basic understanding of what happened there. No mention of the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs were not part of that history. There is a completely separate phenomenon. They are completely separate people. And China itself is a completely separate region of the world. That's the point I want to drill in here. And we went all the way up to the 1800s, because the Qing Dynasty, sorry, the 1900s. The Qing Dynasty ends at around that time. So now we go to the history of the Uyghurs, most recently known as the Islamic Republic of East Turkestan. 
That was the official name in 1932, the Islamic Republic of East Turkestan. We're going to start, inshallah, the same time we started with the Muslims of China. We're going to start in the 7th century, at the time of the Prophet Obviously, you can go on and on, thousands of years. There's a rich history there, obviously. But we'll start just so we can have that parallel in our minds. So, now we're speaking about the Uyghur people. So, the Uyghur's history at this point in the 7th century starts in this area, in this region of the world you can see there on the screen. The Gok Turk Khagnate is what you can refer to it as. It's pretty much where you see most of Russia and Central Asia at this point in time, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, or a lot of, uh, uh, and Kazakhstan, that region, and a lot of modern-day Russia. That's the Gok Turks. And the Gok Turk Khagnate was home to basically many Turkic and Mongolic people. And most of these cultures and tribes were nomadic people, and they would move around here and there. The Uyghurs were among the Turkic people that was in the Gokturk Khagnate. Now, what happens is, the Uyghurs, and they, by the way, they speak their own language, it's called Old Uyghur, and that's their, that's their, that was their original language. Now that language has now been extinct, but there's another language, which is the new Uyghur language that they do speak. But in any case, the Uyghurs ally with two groups, uh, the Basmils and the Karluks, to defeat the Gokturks. Uh, and so they defeat the Gokturks, and then this alliance between these three groups, the Buzmils, the Karluks, and the Uyghurs, it falls apart. Remember the name Karluk, by the way, it's going to come up again. And the Karluks are going to be the descendants of them. The, one of the re main reasons why the Uyghurs become Muslim, actually. So this alliance falls apart, and essentially the Uyghur people actually dominate between the two. So they establish the Uyghur Cognate. And this is from 744 to 840. And during this time, as you can see in the map, it's bordering the Tang Dynasty. Remember, we spoke about the Tang Dynasty. Now, the relationship with the Tang Dynasty was very interesting. They were the saviors of the Tang Dynasty. Every time there was a rebellion and a revolt trying to, you know, reestablish within China, who would they call? Not the Ghostbusters. They'd call the Uyghur Khagnate. They would call the Uyghurs, and the Uyghurs would come, drive out the rebellion for them, and they would leave. And then it kept happening so much, and so eventually the Uyghurs said, okay, look, you got to pay us some tribute. Like we're not doing this service for free. And so then it came to a point that they were paying, and now even then when the, uh, uh, when the revolts even stopped, they said, you should still pay us. You have to pay us tribute at this point. How many times we helped you? So that was the relationship between the Uyghurs and the Tang Empire. Um, and so, as you can see here with the Uyghur Khagnate, there's the Tibetan Empire in the south, and then there's the Kyrgyz in the north. And they were constantly engaged in battle on both fronts. So to the north, the Kyrgyz people, Kyrgyzstan, and then the, the Tibetan people in the south. And they were constantly engaged in this war. They themselves allied with uh, some of the Persian people that was living in, remember this name, the Tarim Basin. The Tarim Basin is where we see now East Turkestan. Occupied East Turkestan is the Tarim Basin. That is the region that... Uh, our times, modern-day Uyghur people, they themselves identify very strongly with that land there. That is the Tarim Basin, and it goes all the way back to the 8th century. And so in this Tarim Basin, there were the Sogdians, and so they had some, you know, relations, good relations between them. In fact, the Uyghur people, who were a Buddhist people at this point in time, they actually convert en masse to Zoroastrianism because of the Persian influence. And there is no real Muslim influence at this point. As you can see, they're quite far from the Abbasid caliphate at this point in time. Now, eventually, all this fighting is occurring, and they lose, and they, the empire falls to the Kyrgyz in the north. So what do they do? The Uyghur people split at this point. So there is now a split in the Uyghur people. And this is what happens at 840 CE. One group of people who are known as the Yellow Uyghurs, the Yellow Uyghurs, they uh, essentially established the Gangzo Uyghur Kingdom, which is around Tibet, basically. And um, they eventually lose this state in a few hundred years. And they never rule their own sovereign state. They become part of the Tibetan kind of Buddhist uh, system there. And they kind of become absorbed there. And to this day, there's really only 15,000 that identify as yellow Uyghur people. And they are mainly Buddhist. Now, the other Uyghurs, they establish a kingdom known as the kingdom of Kocho in the Tarim Basin. So these are the Uyghurs that we see now today. The Uyghurs, 
they all go back to this group here in this split. And this is in the Tarim Basin. This is where East Turkestan is. And uh, they ruled there in the Kingdom of Kocha. This is 840 CE we're talking about, okay? This is not yesterday. This is 840 CE. The Uyghur people were there. And essentially, they have, uh, it's a very diverse state. You have the Persians and some Indo-Europeans and you have the Turkic people. They're all interacting and it becomes a very diverse culture. And you can see here on this slide, the yellow Uyghurs, as you can see, a lot more of that Chinese kind of feature on the picture. And then to the right, you see the Uyghur people. So there are a lot more Turkic in their origin. Now, how did the Uyghurs become Muslim? So you have the Kingdom of Kocho. It's there in the Tarim Basin, right? That's in the area of modern, you know, uh, e occupied East Turkestan. Uh, so how did they become Muslim? They're Zoroastrian at this point. Well, the story begins, as I said, with the descendants of the Karluks. Now, who are the Karluks? The original allies, which, which they were able to then establish their own kingdom. But then they had a bit of a rift. So the Karluks, they established right next to the Kingdom of Kocho. Now, who are, who's the Kingdom of Kocho? The Uyghur people. Very good. Excellent. So, next to them is the Karluks, the descendants of the Karluks, and they establish what's known as the Kharakhanid Khanate. The Kharakhanid Khanate. Try to say that eight times fast. Um, and they became rivals with the Kocho because, of course, their history is well known and they go back, they go way back. Um, essentially, the Kharakhanids, they become Muslim first. They become Muslim first. In 934, a man by the name of Satuk Bughra Khan. Now, Satuk Bughra Khan, a very important figure in Uyghur history. All Uyghur people here, they owe from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through Satuk Bughra Khan, the blessing, alhamdulillah, of Islam in that region. Satuk Bughra Khan, who is descendants from the Karluks and then the Kharakhanid, you know, Khanate, he essentially becomes Muslim because he was the son actually of the emperor and he was interacting with Muslims coming from Bukhara for trade. And these Muslim merchant that was coming from Bukhara, it is said, Allahu Alam, it's you know, most likely true, maybe not the you know, individual person, but probably many people. It is said that there's one particular individual that just kept coming back and forth and meeting with him. Allah Alam. But he became very curious. Why are you praying in this way, right? The way you're praying salah and these sorts of things. Because the thing about Islam, of course, is that it's a, as, the, as described in the Quran, faith is a tree. Its branches extend into the sky. Islam is not a thing, or faith is not a thing that you're just in your heart and nobody sees the effect of it. People know when they see a Muslim because there's so much of being a Muslim that is external. The way we pray, doing wudu, external body and these sorts of things. In any case, so he starts to have this relationship and eventually he accepts Islam. This is the prince of the Kharakhanids. He accepts Islam. And so then he gets a fatwa. I'm not saying I agree with this fatwa. I'm not giving this fatwa. But this is what happened historically. He receives a fatwa. And obviously you can see in this time there's you know, special interest there. He gives a fatwa that he can go and kill his father and become the emperor of the Kharakhanid uh, people. I think he was a bit used in this regard. But in any case, Satuk Bugra Khan then, he goes and he kills and assassinates his father and he becomes the ruler of the Kharakhanids. So now you have right next to the kingdom of Kocho, the Uyghur people, a Sunni Muslim state. And Satuk Bugra Khan, after he becomes Muslim, the whole Kharakhanid system, they become Muslim. And so now you start to see this gradual cultural exchange and infiltration of the Islamic way and culture on the Uyghur people. Now, the Mongols come. Remember Yuan Dynasty in China? The Mongols come. So the same Mongols who have taken over China as well, those Mongols have taken over this region as well. The Mongols have become taken over this region as well. And the kingdom of Kocho becomes a vassal state for the Mongols. What that means is basically, it's Mongolian, but you guys can run your affairs. So you keep your kingdom of Kocho, but they have to pay some tribute to the Mongols. But because now it's all Mongol territory, there's less of that fighting between the Kharakhanids and the kingdom of Kocho, between the Uyghurs and the Karluks. And so then the Kharakhanids influence greatly the uh, Mongols and the Uyghurs. And as we said, remember the, when the Mongols conquered, they were very impressed. So the Mongols become Muslim. And so then they established the Chagtai dynasty, who actually, uh, the first Chagtai 
ruler to become convert to Islam, his name was Mubarak Shah. Mubarak Shah becomes Muslim, and so then that whole area now becomes Islam and Muslim, even the kingdom of Kocho. And this is now where the Tarim Basin, modern occupied East Turkestan, becomes a bastion of Sunni Islam. There's an infiltration of culture. There are, you know, uh, uh, Turkic uh, uh, people and Persian people and books that are coming, scholars that are coming. It's all happening. Masajid are being built. This is in this time in the 15th century, so 14, in the 1400s. So this is now 600 years of Islam, subhanAllah, the history of Islam in this region. This is again, not yesterday, subhanAllah. And I speak to those who are not Uyghur. Subhanallah, 600 years. How are they not part of the Ummah? 600 years of Islam in this region. It's incredible. And in any case, uh, you see in this time as well, scholars that come from that region, uh, like Mahmoud al-Kashgari. Mahmoud al-Kashgari from Kashgar. And Kashgar is one of the regions in the Tarim Basin. Uh, Mahmoud al-Kashgari was a linguist and he wrote a, a, a dictionary actually of Arabic basically into Turkic languages. So he wrote a whole dictionary of Turkic languages. Uh, and he was a, a great uh, scholar and there were many other scholars as well. Now, in this region, at this point, you had the Chagtai dynasty underneath which was the kingdom of Kocho. They now become Muslim. But now what happens, as that place becomes, you know, very much a bastion of Sunni Islam, you have the uh, Sufi movements that start to occur in this region. In particular, the Naqshbandi Khojas. Now, Naqshbandi Sufism is a well-known, you know, form of Sufism in Sunni Islam. Uh, of, and it's all throughout different regions uh, that we may, uh, uh, you know, go to and may have heard of this term before. It's basically an order. Who, what are Sufis? Sufis are basically people who are focused on the heart and they make their circles and they do different, you know, they're very much, they're kind of like spiritual monks, you can say, is the, is the English kind of equivalent to the focus of kind of Sufi people. But these uh, Naqshbandi Sufis, and Naqshbandism was known to be a bit more politically active. They weren't just kind of in their masjid just praying. They would also try to seek change as well. Um, and so you see the Naqshbandi Sufa, Sufis, they actually replace the Chagtai Khagnate and they become the rulers of the Tarim Basin. Uh, and then there was this internal struggle, unfortunately, uh, between uh, two kind of descendants of the main Sufi guy that came through, between the Afaqi or White Mountain Khojas and the Ishaqi or Black Mountain Khojas because it was based on where they were. There were some mountain ranges that were white and some that were black. And essentially, the Ishaqis win. And so they are ruling over Tarim Basin. And this is where we start to see, which is really sad in our history, the infighting. So the Afaqis who lost, they go to the neighboring Tibetans, and particularly to the fifth Dalai, La the Dalai Lama. In 1677, they said, come help us so we can take over the Tarim Basin. And so the Zungar Buddhists, so that's in that Tibetan region, the Zungar Buddhists, they take control of the Tarim Basin. Again, these are not Chinese, by the way. These are Tibetans. These are different. So the Zungar Buddhists then, they take over the region in 1680, and they install a puppet, a faqi, Sufi ruler, which is, this is really sad. But you see this replayed in history, by the way. This is not just this region. You see this happening in Palestine, in its history, with, before Salah al-Din, about the alliances of the Fatimids with the Crusaders, and all this kind of internal stuff because they would ally with external enemies just because they wanted to be the ones in charge. And this was something that we see repeated in history. And it's a very sad part of history. So the Zungar Khanate rules over the Tarim Basin for a short period of time, just 16 years. And during this time, the Uyghurs were treated very poorly. They were cruelly uh, treated and persecuted. And the only people that benefited was the family of that Sufi Afaqi uh, Khoja. Uh, eventually then, if you remember, remember I said the Qing dynasty is where the Uyghur history and the Chinese history come together? So now, when they're in this state, how are they going to come out? I mean, the people, who are they going to help? To, how are they going to rebel? How are they going to cause a revolution to get out of the difficult state? The Qing dynasty is now trying to expand its territory. And so the Uyghurs ally with the Qing to remove the Zungar Buddhists from the region because they were being treated very poorly. And so the Qing dynasty then, takes over that region. Now, this is, the this is 1696. This is the first time in over a thousand years that any Chinese empire has ever taken control of this particular region. And they had not taken actually control because, in fact, 
they carried out, by the way, a Zungar genocide. They killed a lot of these Buddhists, Zungar Buddhists that were there, over 500,000. They left the Uyghurs there though, obviously, because the Uyghurs were the ones that were helping and wanting to remove them. The Qing dynasty allowed the Uyghurs to have their own kind of semi-autonomous state, and it was known as the Kumul Khanate, and this lasts all the way to 1930. So very recent, the Kumul Khanate. And the Kumul Khanate, they governed themselves, they were in that region, underneath the Qing dynasty. Now, in this time, the Uyghurs, they were not called Uyghurs actually. They were called Turk Musliman. Turk Musliman, because of course, in the time of the Qing, uh, dynasty, the, the Chinese, they're just looking at them like a Muslim. Right? Oh, you're just a Turkic Muslim, right? So at this time, there's, this is not a part of the identity of the people there. They're not seeing themselves as Uyghur per se. We're going to come to when they start to see themselves in that way. At this stage, they're Turk Musliman, or Shanto they were called, which means turban head. Um, and they were often work uh, lumped together with the Hui. No, I forgot to say this. Who are the Hui? The Hui Muslims were those Chinese Muslims I was speaking about at the beginning of the presentation. So those Chinese Muslims that were there in China, they're the Hui Muslims. They're ethnically Hui, so they're Chinese, and they have the Hui name that is given to them, and they are Muslim in China, okay? So the Ch to the Chinese, they said, oh, you're Muslim, you're Muslim, khalas, like you guys are pretty much the same. But ethnically, they were different. Now, the Khojas, they tried to revolt, the Faqi Khojas, because they were in power before. The Kumul, so they tried to revolt against the Kumul Khanate. This was, a, this was not a really uh, good thing to do because of course the Kumul Khanate, you have already, it's there. And everyone's able to live under the Qing dynasty. But the Afaqi Khojas, they wanted to get their power again. And they read, led a rebellion. And this rebellion was from Jahangir Khoja Muhammad, and Muhammad Yusuf Khoja. And eventually they were quelled and the resistance dies out in 1860. So basically lots of this kind of civil strife in beneath. 1862 to 1877, you have this revolution from an Uzbek by the name of Yaqub Beg, and you can see him there in the bottom left corner. Yaqub Beg from Uzbekistan area, he joins the Hui to establish Kashgaria. So they revolt against the Qing and the Kumul Khanate, and they try to have their own autonomous region there called Kashgaria. And that's one of the main Muslim regions of the Tarim Basin. In particular, Kash Kashgar is very close to the rest of the Central Asian countries. So that, you, that was the area where you found most of that Muslim culture. But eventually the Qing reconquered because the Uyghurs didn't like this foreign kind of rule that was over them and kind of imposed upon them. The Hui, who are not from them, and the Uzbeks, who are also not from them. So the, Qi, the Qing reconquered in 1877 and the Kumul Khanate continued. Now, this is where the name Xinjiang comes, 1884, into that region. When the Qing reconquered the territory, they named it Xinjiang, meaning the new frontier. And it became the Australia of China. What do I mean by that? So what did the British do when they completely, when they, what did the British do when they colonized Australia and they invaded and kicked out the um, indigenous uh, population in the very sad history of, of this country. What did they do? Very good. They brought the convicts. So the same thing that China did to the Terran Basin. They sent all the Han convicts to the Terran Basin. And what happened was there started to be tension between the people. Obviously, you're sending a bunch of convicts to the region. You're not getting the nice Han Chinese. You're getting, you know, the, the, the riffraff, the worst of the worst. And the tension has led to then these Han people who are being forced into that region that is not from their land. And the Uyghurs start to spread out a bit more into the Tarim Basin because these Han people are being sent there. Now, that's where you first start to see the tensions between the Han and the Uyghurs, by the way, at that time. And, and it's with the convicts. The Republic of China is established in 1912. At this point, the Kumul Khanate is still there. But in this period of time, you have the warlord era, right? In China, a very unstable you know, this is kind of post-colonialism and everything like this. And so all these warlords are taking over the different areas. And in this time, Mongolia breaks away from the China because after the Qing Empire falls, a Republic of China is being formed. And so these people who are not Chinese, they're saying, okay, look, then we have our own place. So Mongolia and Tibet, they break off uh, from the Republic of China. And this is where the Uyghurs start to form their own identity and saying, we need our own independence as well. And this is where Uyghur nationalism starts to grow. 
They can say, well, we're not Chinese. You know, the Qing, they took over. There was all these battles and whatnot. But we, this is our land. And so then, at this time, you get Soviet influence into that region. So the Soviets, of course, were communists, and they had established their influence throughout Central Asia. Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, all those places, all those stans, right, were under Soviet rule. And it was a devastating thing for that area of the world in terms of Islam. Because the Russians, when they came, they destroyed Islamic culture from that region. They destroyed Masajid. They killed the Imams. They removed that faith from the, from the people because they saw it as a threat to their communist rule. And so the Soviet, however, the Soviets, the reason why everyone said that, because the Soviets were selling this idea to all those people saying, look, this is a new part of the world. People are starting to establish different things. Empires are falling. And so they're saying, we'll help you establish your own ethnic state. So you're going to be, you know, your own Uzbeki people. You're going to be this, this, this. And they said the same thing to the Uyghurs. And so in Tashkent, which is in Uzbekistan, they had a conference actually. And at this conference, the Soviets sponsored this conference, the people, the delegation that came from the Terran Basin, they embraced the name of Uyghur people again, because obviously that was their ancestors. And they said, we are Uyghur people, right? And we need our own homeland. Uh, and that is our land anyways. And so then the Soviets tried to spread Uyghur nationalism because they wanted their own interests. The Soviets wanted control of obviously the Chinese region. They wanted control of pretty much the whole world really, the Soviets. And so they kept on expanding. They wanted the, but the Chinese of course would not do that. So they're wanting to push in and so they're saying, look, we have these minorities. They're preying on that kind of ethnic tension and saying, okay, you guys can have your own state and we can help you and, we'll, and then they'll have the Soviet influence there. In any case, they gave promises like Kazakhstan. The Republic of China conquered to the Soviet propaganda and said, look what's happening to all the heritage of you know, Islam and all these things in the region in the Republic of China. Look what's happening to those areas. It's lost all their religious heritage. And so eventually, the Kumul Khanate becomes abolished in 1930. And you have these three competing interests. You have the Chinese communists, number one. You have the Soviets, number two. And then you have the Republic of China, which is like more far right. These three people all have their eye on the prize because that's a key region between the Soviets and the Chinese. And the Uyghurs wanted their own, in their own independence and their own republic. And eventually, uh, the Uyghurs from the Khotan province, they were able to push their agenda for a sovereign state led by Sabit Damullah Abdul Baqi and supported by Muhammad Amin Bughra and his two brothers, Abdullah and Nur Ahmad Jan. Completely separate from the Soviets, completely separate from these three, they did their own thing. And they established the Islamic Republic of East Turkestan. And you can see the flag actually that was there. And they adopted that Ottoman flag. As you see, they saw themselves as part of the Ummah, as part of, you know, uh, Islam. And you see the La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah that's written there at the bottom. And they established this and they implement, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sharia uh, in that region. Um, uh, and some aspects there that might have not been uh, the best in terms of, you know, uh, modern sensibilities. But in that time, there were a lot of Swedish people who sent Christian missionaries to try and dilute kind of the Uyghur culture and whatnot. So they expelled them. However, they did allow for religious freedom and they did allow for Christians to practice their religion and keep to their churches. And in this uh, period of time of two years, uh, the Islamic Republic of East Turkestan, they started to nationalize industry, mining resources, because that area is very resource heavy. Uh, and then what happened was, which is very sad, this is wallahi the saddest part in the history of the Uyghurs. Of course, the saddest part is what's happening now. But this is incredible, right? You have the Islamic Republic of East Turkestan. It's its own state. It's its own people. It's the will of the people. But the Republic of China wants that land, wants to take that land. And they used the Hui Muslims as the soldiers to fight against the Uyghur people and to bring that land into the control of the Republic of China. And so at this time, you have these community militias of Hui people who are going and they are now killing the Uyghur army generals. In fact, you have stories like uh, Ma, uh, Ma Zhang Chang 
who was a Hui general, and he executed uh, a Uyghur rebellion leader named uh, Timur Beg. And subhanAllah, I'm sorry, there's no children here, uh, but it's very gruesome details, but this is part of the history uh, that subhanAllah, they displayed the head of this uh, Uyghur uh, leader at the uh, Eid Ka uh, Masjid in Kashgar. And you see the masjid that's there, one of the very few masjid, I don't know if it's, it's still there at this point, uh, because they've decimated and destroyed at this point almost all the masajid in that area. Uh, and the Hui army is crushed, because of course the Hui armies are getting backing from the Republic of China and whatnot. And they crush the armies of East Turkestan, and then the Islamic Republic falls. And the Soviets, at that point in the chaos, although the Republic of China is trying to get control, the Soviets come in the chaos and they put their own puppet leader there that was also Chinese. It gets very confusing, but that's politics for you. If you remember, three influences, the Soviets, the, com the Communist Chinese, and the Republic of China. So here, a Chinese person who is with the Soviets is the one that is now in charge of that region. And the Republic of China then, look at how things changed so quickly. Before they destroyed them, now they're saying, oh, well, we don't want Soviet influence in that region. So then they supported the Uyghur uprising against that Soviet control, but were un unsuccessful. Eventually, the leader that was there for the Tehran base for East Turkestan that was put there betrays the Soviets, and he becomes a Chinese communist. And then at this stage now, both the Soviets and the Republic of China want this guy out. And so in this time, uh, and this is also in the wake of World War II as well, uh, East Turkestan is established uh, for five years with the help of these you know, other powers that are there. But this doesn't uh, lead, you know, this doesn't last for very long. And East Turkestan becomes absorbed within the communist regime of China. This is the People's Republic of China, which is to this day who is in power. This starts in 1949. So up until 1949, we see that this region was an Uyghur land, an ethically different people, ruled by the Uyghur people from the vast majority of it. We're talking thousands of years. Here and there, people coming in and out. At this point, the communists, they start to encourage Han immigration to that region to dilute the population and discourage nationalist attitudes because they saw the Uyghur people, subhanAllah, may Allah give strength and continue to give strength to the Uyghur people. They never went down. Two times they resisted Soviet, Chinese Communist, and Republic of China and established their own state twice within just a few decades. And so they were weary of this, the will of the people. So they diluted the population so they wouldn't see like, oh, this is a Uyghur land because there will be so many Han Chinese people living there. So they started to send them. By the way, the Israelis did the exact same tactic. And it was around the exact same time as well, subhanAllah. While what was happening in Palestine, the exact same thing was happening to the Uyghur people. And then... Um, Essentially, they do. They claim that you know. I won't go into the propaganda. Then I have to refute it. We'll leave it at that. Um, the CCP saw uh, the greatest threat, the greatest threat to the gov their governance in that region was in particular Islam, because they had already diluted the culture. They had the Han Chinese there, but they knew Islam was the unifying force that could bring these people together and it could then lead to them bringing back their independence. So they started at this point to limit your religious freedoms and these sorts of things and they started to uh, enforce sanitization of the Uyghur people like enforcing Chinese language and these sorts of things. We're talking in the 60s at this point. And Essentially, there were separatist movements that were, were, were coming up at this time, but there were, none of them were successful. A lot of them were getting support from the Soviets because the Soviets, again, like I said, wanted that control. But nothing was able to really pan out. In 1962, 60,000 60, Uyghurs actually went to Kazakhstan under the Soviets. They felt it's better to be under the Soviets than the Chinese. And then there's this interesting point in history, which is a bit of a flashpoint, where it's like, what's going on exactly here? And this is during the Soviet-Afghanistan War. So in 1979, we know the Soviets start to try and invade Afghanistan. Now, who's on whose side? The Soviets are trying to invade Afghanistan. That's number one. 
Afghanistan is very close to China, of course. So the Chinese don't want the Soviets to invade into Afghanistan and keep their influence in their region. So the Chinese are supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to resist against Russian invasion. But the Soviets, who are supporting the Uyghurs in China, are saying to the Uyghurs, who obviously feel at one with the Afghan people, no, you're not allowed to go and help the resistance there because we want to, to invade that land. So it's a kind of a very tricky kind of almost Shakespearean situation that you saw at this particular moment in time. Um, and by the way, the Chinese, they used as propaganda again, the Soviet cruelty to the Afghani people, to the Uyghurs and whatnot to show, look, you know, don't ally with the Soviets, etc. Which to be honest is probably a fair point. The Soviets and the Chinese, both of them foreign forces anyways, none of them have the interest, the best interest of the Uyghurs in mind. Now you get in 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So now there's no more of a Soviet threat. But this now, after the Soviet Union collapses, what happens to Central Asia? All these countries start to form in 1991. Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, all these are now forming in 1991 with the, full, with the fall of the Soviets. And so now, what do you think the Uyghurs are thinking? We're part of that same camp too. Like that is us. We're ethnically much close. We are actually of that people, Uzbek and whatnot. They're our cousins. That is the Turkic people, right? So we need our own state as well. This is in the 90s. And at this time, you had many uh, Muslims, because at this point in time, you had the Islamic University of Medina, which actually forms in the 60s. But at this time, they start to have an international kind of, um, uh, an international vision, and they start to sponsor and encourage other countries, governments to sponsor students for free to go to Medina. And of course, Medina is the one of the, the you know, it is the second greatest city in Islam. It is the uh, homeland of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is where he's buried. And so people from East, occupied East Turkestan are going to the Islamic University in Medina and they are learning Islam there. Now of course in that region there is a very strong Salafi influence there. And Salafi influence is very much uh, about kind of destroying any nationalist ideas and focusing on kind of the ummah and this focus on activism and action and political action. Of course, this movement was to have influence on later jihadi movements in a bad way. Uh, but this Salafi kind of attitude and uh, you know, culture comes now to uh, the Uyghur region. And this now starts to spread. And this idea of we are a Muslim people, you know, and these people who are t over us, they're not Muslim, they're not of us, we need to establish our own land. This becomes the rise of Salafi in that region. Now, the Chinese claim that these are jihadists. Jihadists have now come, they've been influenced in Saudi Arabia, and they've come, and they're now doing acts of terrorism and these sorts of things. It's very unclear, because obviously, number one, I don't trust for a second anything that comes out of the CCP reports of any sort. You know, because they'll say, oh, they did this and the indiscriminate killing and all these different things. Allahu A'lam. Obviously, if that occurred, if it truly occurred, then we're against that. That is not what Islam teaches. And the Uyghurs would be the first person to say that this is not okay. But in any case, if, if that was the case, that was to be a fringe people. Now, the Chinese, of course, are very afraid because they know an imminent, a revolution is very imminent. And they're going to take back control of that region. Because now they're feeling that kind of Islamic spirit and they're wanting their own land, their own region, which is their own. And so this is now where you start to see the absolute, systematic, targeted decimation of Islam from that region. They destroyed 5,000 masajid. They arrested every imam in the region. Open practice of Islam became illegal. Even saying something like, Salaamu Alaikum, you get locked up. Nikah, Islamic Nikah became illegal as well. And this is where the cultural genocide begins. And subhanAllah, I'll share a few highlights and we're going to get into it inshallah in the panel point, in the panel discussion. But modest estimates, we're talking modest estimates, one to three million people in these internment camps. And I want you all to leave with this one thing. Why are they in those camps? Why? What is the reason? Because there are Uyghurs who are also not in those camps. There are Uyghur Muslims who are not in those camps. 
Why do they get put in the camps? And why are they staying in the camps? Why do they go in? And why can they leave? They go in because they say, Rabbi Allah. I'm not just saying that for cliche. That is literally fact. The only reason they go into the internment camps is if they show they're practicing Islam. That is it. It's not about... And it, by the way, this is not even like, uh, oh, this is what someone... They themselves are saying this. They're saying, this is, this is not, uh, you know, this is not controversial. Any small practice of Islam, you go into a, a re-education center, internment camp. And you saw how the st situation is there. And subhanAllah, when you are there, why do they stay there? It's because they refuse to let go of their Islam. If all they say is, I've become an atheist and I pledge my allegiance to China, khalas, they go back to their family. If all of them did that in that region, all of this would stop overnight almost. If every Uyghur person there were to say, we have nothing to do with Islam, that's fine, we reject. But they refuse. They refuse. They keep to their deen. They keep to their iman. And subhanAllah, you know, in some journalists were able to go into the internment camps, of course, with the government's permission. And it's laughable, honestly, it is absolutely laughable when you see the videos of the Chinese government trying to make it look like these education camps are a good thing. You just see inside, you can see, I've, you know, subhanAllah, like, you see the souls that are just crushed in all of them inside. And the journalist even said they went to the bathroom after and they saw in the bathroom, it was written, Oh my heart, don't break. These are people who are taken away from their families, taken away from the children. They are children who are taken away. Torture, persecution, forced organ harvesting. We're going to get into the details because it's really important for us to know what's happening. This is a holocaust. Nothing short of that. I don't know of any clearer example. I don't know of anything clearer of religious and ethnic genocide than this. We say never again. But when you have three million people who are locked up for nothing except practicing Islam and who are being brainwashed and forced and their souls crushed until they become atheist, Chinese, are pledging allegiance to the government, Wallahi, death is easier than that. So subhanAllah, I come to the end of my presentation. We've gone through the history of Islam in that region, from the Chinese and from East Turkestan. And I want us to remember this. This is not China. This is not China. This is East Turkestan. They've established it twice already. They were there for a thousand years. Just like we are vocal about what happened with Israel and Palestine, we're talking the exact same timeline. Israel has gone and taken over Palestine and done what they've done. Even worse, wallahi, tens of times worse what is happening to the Uyghurs than what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinian people. And that is a heavy statement to make if you know what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinian people. All I said, I, my goal was from this presentation is that we all collectively, I know this is an international movement, we take that step above that first line. And that step is the, always the first step of the believer. And that is a dua. And that is a dua. And you might think, oh, I'm making dua, I'm making dua. That's not, that's not what, what is that going to do? Magically things are going to happen, etc., etc., etc. When and inshallah it will happen, the Uyghur people are free, and you made dua, you are a part of that liberation. You are a part of that liberation because when things happen in this world, Allah makes the asbab, the means to what has happened in that world, causality. 
And there are two levels of causality. There's the natural causality, but then there's the causality with Allah. So you say, for instance, you, someone's making dua and dua and dua to get a job, for example. And then they go, they do well in the interview, and then they get the job. What caused them to get the job? Was it their CV and whatnot? Yes, from one angle. That's one layer. But what also caused it? What was the prime level? It was the dua. The dua caused it. So when it happens, don't you want your du'as to be counted as that tongue of yours whispering to Allah Azza wa Jal becoming like a sword, subhanAllah, that will liberate these people. Dua is the most important thing that we can do as Muslims. The first step to wanting any change is dua. From dua comes the action. When you've sincerely asked Allah, when you've begged Allah, when you've felt what you felt, and you've seen what you've seen, and you're going to see what you're going to see, and you beg Allah for this, then from that you think, how am I going to do this? And you do it with Allah's help. But that first step is with that dua. And inshallah, when we have our interview, inshallah, I want us to put ourselves in their shoes. I want us to put ourselves in their shoes and understand what they are going through. Wallahi, it will be heartbreaking, it will be heavy, it will be difficult to absorb. It's not easy to hear these stories. It's not like we like to hear these stories. But these are the things that can soften hard hearts. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala liberate the people of East Turkestan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect them from their oppressors. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala invigorate them with more strength and iman and faith. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reunite all of them with their families. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it a light and a strength and an izzah for this ummah as it was for hundreds of years. Ameen ya rabbil alameen. Jazakumullahu khayran. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.